All right, we're in James chapter one, the book of James. When I used to teach the memorizing the books of the Bible and people would get stuck and they'd say, ah, oh, what's the next book? I'm at the book of Hebrews. I would try to give them a hint and I'd start to do a little James Brown. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> and uh, they'd say, oh, that's right, the book of James. So there you go. Jump back, want to touch the sky. <laughs> Okay, anyway, <laughs> that was a weak attempt at a little James Brown. Tonight we're going to be talking about the testing of your faith. I know your faith's already been tested with that poor approach to James Brown. But um, we are in the book of James, and we are going to have four power-packed chapters. And I know in order to see your Bibles, you probably would like the lights to be on. Could you flip those lights on back there? Uh, right, right by you, the switches are... Thank you, sir. Just take every one of them on, and it, it should work. There you go. All right. So if you can locate the book of James, hopefully you won't have any trouble from this point forward, finding the book of James. And James is one of the earliest books of the New Testament, or you might say one of the oldest books in fact, it probably dates to about A.D. 49. Um, Jesus died around 32, 33 A.D. So you're talking about the book of James being written some 15 years or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The New Testament books um, that are the two earliest are probably James and Galatians. Uh, the book of Matthew is probably very early. Some people think it's the book of Mark. But they're all around 49 to 50 A.D. And Galatians and James are very interesting to contrast when you go to a study of the book of James. Because the book of Galatians is written by who? By Paul. And Paul is defending the biblical gospel in the book of Galatians. I know the ladies are starting a study in Galatians. And you're looking at the authentic gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that the price has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. Logan and I had a chance to go to Miguel's today because Miguel's is uh, really like required daily eating, don't you think? And anyway, we're, we engaged a young man. We're talking a little bit and, and Logan asked him a question. He said, hey, if a friend of yours was dying and had 30 seconds to live, what would you tell him? How would you explain how to get right with God? And Logan told me afterwards that he asked that question of a lot of people, and a lot of people respond the same way. They say something like this, well, I would tell the person that they need to pray more. I would tell the person to read the Bible more. I would tell the person to get baptized. Um, all of those answers are good but incorrect, if you have 30 seconds to live, the only thing you want to know is not, can I start a reading plan in Genesis? It's how do I get saved? How can my soul be secure with the God who made me and the God who is both good and gracious, but is also a judge? So you want to tell them about the hope of the gospel, but that, that price has been paid in full. And let no one distort that gospel, not even us, says Paul, or an angel from heaven. If we proclaim any other gospel than the one that we've proclaimed to you, let him be anathema, under the curse of God. And then Paul will say later in Galatians 2 that a man or a woman is justified by faith. 
not by works. So the book of Galatians is dealing with what's called the Judaizing heresy. That there are Jewish people, they may have meant well, but they were telling people, you've got to do certain things to be saved. That's not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is you believe in the work of Jesus Christ and you're saved. Now the book of James is a good contrast to Galatians in this sense. The book of James says, once you're saved, James is from the show me state. The show me state is Missouri. And here's how it works. If you say you're a believer, show me, says James. I want to see your faith in action. Paul's dealing with justification before God in the sense of our legal justification. James is dealing with our justification before men. He's saying the only way that a person is going to know that you're saved is how you live. It's going to be that you actually prove what you say. You can say things with your mouth. Even the demons believe that God is one and they shudder. They have one up on a lot of people. There are a lot of people who say they believe in God, but they don't shudder. They don't live in the fear of the Lord. Now I'm talking about a healthy fear, a reverence of God. But the demons even believe theologically correct, but they're not saved. They don't have a personal relationship with God. And James, in four power-packed chapters, the theme of the book of James is living out your faith. If you want to write that down, the theme of the book of James is living out your faith in trials, in good deeds, in your actions, and with your speech. Your mouth, the whole uh, chapter three of the book of James is that your mouth is a good indicator of your heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what? Speaks. And so your mouth will give you away. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He apparently wrote the book of James uh, before the Jerusalem council, which is in Acts chapter 15. It's a council that he chaired. And he is dealing with, show me your faith. Or we could say what practical faith looks like what faith looks like in action. Faith will produce. Faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. You get saved by grace, but a true saving faith will be productive. It won't always produce the same fruit in every season, but the overarching theme of a truly saved life will be fruit. It will be the production of the life of God. James is a doer. He says in James 1.22, don't be merely a hearer of the word, be what? A doer. That's what James is about. James himself was a doer and he challenges us to be doers as well. Intellectual agreement to a set of facts is not enough. James says either put up or shut up. And it's really that blunt He's saying, look, if you're going to say you're a Christian, then I want to see it in your life. James opens the letter by naming himself. Notice, he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jacob is a common male first name, less, and a less well-known surname is its cognate, James. James is a cognate of Jacob or Yaakov, or Yaakov, as the Hebrews would say. Jacob is obviously one of the most well-known characters of the Old Testament because Jacob 
was a conniver, a supplanter, a manipulator, and he met God and wrestled with the Lord, and his name was changed to Israel. And I think James Montgomery Boyce said it well when Israel probably means God prevails. And James, being a cognate of Jacob, it's obvious why so many people were named James, because Jacob is this famous person in the history of the people of Israel. And James is writing to the 12 tribes, verse 1, who are dispersed abroad. And he sends them greetings. Bible students note, note that the word greetings is also used in Acts 15, 23, as a letter is written from the Jerusalem Council after a decision is made about the purity of the gospel in Acts 15, and it's written to the believing Gentiles to tell them that they're saved by grace. And the letter opens with greetings. And so uh, I think it's important just to note that the same word is used here. And so James describes himself as a bondservant. He's a doulos of God. The, uh, the word or the name James is derived from the Italian Giacomo. The simplicity of the identification is in reference to the well-known James the Just or the half-brother of the Lord. In Galatians 1.19, if you flip back there for a second as we've talked about a little bit about Galatians, you'll see the identification of James as Paul tells his story about confirming the gospel Go to Galatians 1, look at verse 19. Paul says uh, in 18, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other apostles except Galatians 1:19, James, the Lord's brother. James, in the book of James, is the brother of Jesus. In the book of John, if you flip over to John chapter 7, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see there's an account of Jesus' brothers. They're telling him to go up to the feast and to reveal himself and to do some works. John 7 uh, verse 5 says, For not even his brothers, Jesus' brothers, were believing in him. John 7 verse 5. There's an interesting scripture in 1 Corinthians, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. In chapter 15, which is the most exhaustive chapter on the resurrection, just flip over there, there to 1 Corinthians 15. One of the resurrection appearances that happened that's recorded after the Lord appeared to Peter, as we talked about on Sunday, was that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 6, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep or died. Then Jesus appeared, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, to James, then to all the apostles. It's believed by scholars since it says in John 7, 5 that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says that Jesus appeared to James and then in the book of Acts and in Galatians and other places, James is the leader of the Jerusalem church. James became a believer, but it would appear only after his resurrected brother appeared to him. Now, I say half-brother because Jesus was born of a virgin. But Mary and Joseph 
after the birth of Jesus, did come together as a couple, and other children were born to Mary and Joseph, brothers and sisters. Now, if you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, this may bother you a little bit because you've probably been taught about the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Mary was a perpetual virgin, and she was that way her whole life. But that is not the case. And uh, the book of Mark, chapter 6, verse 3, the book of Matthew in chapter 13, I think it's around verse 55, says that Jesus had siblings. He had brothers. He had sisters. Now, they were technically half-brothers and sisters because they came into the world in the normal way that babies are born when a husband and wife come together. But Jesus was the exception. He was the God-man. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus? Let's say that you're James and you're eating your Captain Crunch in the morning with Jesus. Imagine all that James could have reflected on and experienced as he grew up with Jesus. Jesus would have been his older brother. Jesus was the firstborn. So he had some of those privileges. But as you grew up with Jesus in the household, just imagine all that James could have reflected on in what he saw in Jesus, and yet he would not believe in Jesus even after Jesus had done multitudes of miracles, had proved who he was, his brother would not believe. Do you know why I think that may be especially hard for a brother? Is when you grow up in the same household with somebody, what do you have? Sibling rivalry. It's got to be hard to grow up with a perfect brother. I mean, I know some of our brothers and sisters think they're perfect, but Jesus actually was perfect. So it had to be hard. Can you imagine mom and dad saying, why can't you be like your brother? <laughs> that would be hard to live up to, right? So I don't know how it felt for James and, and Jude and others. Um, Jude actually, in the book of Jude, which is right before Revelation, take a peek at it. In his opening, and this is another half-brother of Jesus. His name is Jude, right before Revelation. When he introduces himself, he doesn't say Jude from the sacred womb of Mary, brother of Jesus, here's my pedigree, here's my resume, here's my business card. Can you imagine? I mean, I, took, uh, I had the privilege of being part of a group that went to Israel just recently, and every opportunity at a location that can be exploited for its religious significance is exploited. But these men... James and Jude, look at Jude 1, verse 1. Says, Jude says, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and I'm the brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. And he says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. No mention that I'm the brother of, half-brother of Jesus. No mention from the sacred womb of Mary. Just a desire to be known as the bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, if you turn back to the book of James, one thing that we learn about James as an individual is that he was known as James the Just. He got that reputation actually from a record we have from the historian Eusebius. I'm quoting from R. Kent Hughes when he says, the historian Eusebius records the testimony of Hegesippus that James used to enter the temple, quoting now, from Eusebius, and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people, so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God. 
kneeling and asking for forgiveness for the people, maybe for himself too. So from his excessive righteousness, he was called the just, or James the just, or some people say he was called old camel knees because of the amount of time he spent in the temple praying. How many times do you think in prayer James reflected on his childhood? How many times do you think he reflected on his unbelief in his, his own brother? I mean, it had to be hard for him, but he had to have a good measure of regret. One writer said that James was probably a man that bloomed later in life. He was a flower that bloomed late even though he had great privilege. And when we have great privilege, when we get exposed to the truth at a young age and we reject it and we push it away and we bear the consequences of it, we can live with regret. I heard a testimony from somebody recently that got saved in their 50s and they said they regretted the decades that that slipped past them because they couldn't redeem those for the Lord. So those of us who get saved a little later in life, we kind of wish that, you know, we had, we had had those years back to serve the Lord. And we also have a measure of regret because if you're like me, I made a whole host of mistakes when I was not uh, walking with the Lord. And so there's this combination there. James describes himself as the bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word bondservant is doulos, as I mentioned. In Hebrew, it's eved. And when a person in the Old Testament, this is recorded in Exodus 21, after they served their time for their master, if they wanted to stay with their master because they loved them and they didn't want to leave, they would perform a ceremony. They would take something like an awl, like an ice pick. They would put the servant, the voluntary slave, against the threshold of a door. The threshold of a home is where you made a covenant. Uh, a husband will carry his bride across the threshold, speaks of a covenant. They would take an awl and they would pierce the ear of that voluntary slave. The message of the Eved or the Dulas is my ear will always be open to my master's voice. When my master calls, I will obey him. This is Dulas, bondservant, servant, or Eved, a voluntary slave of the Lord. Here's what else it means. It means I will forever be attached to this house. I have voluntarily said, as for me and my house, I will serve my master, I will serve the Lord. I'm always attached to this house and my ear is always open to the voice or the command of my master. I will not say to him, well, I have a list of things that I do not do. I don't mow lawns, I don't do dishes, I don't do windows, but I will do this. No, Jesus said, if you call me Lord, Lord, then you do what I say. That's what the book of James is about. If you're going to call him Lord, then be a voluntary servant. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. James watched that. He watched the humility of his brother. How could he do any less? And how can you and I? If Jesus was willing to humble himself for his people, why can't I humble myself for my wife? Why can't I take an extra moment for other people who might need me? Why can't I have that attitude in myself that was also in Christ Jesus? That although he existed in very nature, God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. 
and he humbled himself, Jesus did, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what your Lord did. And he said, look, a servant is not greater than his master. If you want to be like me, then you need to follow me. And James learned that as, of course, as time went by, as the resurrected Christ appeared to him, James became a servant of Christ. And he said something like this, I'm going to redeem every single moment I've got until I go home to be with my Lord. I'm going to redeem every moment I have for the kingdom of God. And so James is writing to the 12 tribes, uh, although some try to spiritualize this, I would just beg to differ. The 12 tribes are the 12 tribes of Israel. There's no other way around it. Who are dispersed abroad. They are part of what's called, in a technical term, the diaspora. Many times in the history of Israel, there was a dispersion of the Jewish people. In 722 B.C., it happened to the northern kingdom when Assyria attacked them and they were dispersed and many taken to captivity. In 586 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem, then there was a dispersion of Jews and they went into Babylon for 70 years of captivity. In the time of Jesus, they, many of them were, of course, in the land of Israel, but the Romans were dominating. And in 70 AD, when the temple fell under the Romans, there was another dispersion. And the Jewish people as a whole did not return to the land of Israel until 1948, from AD 70 to 1948. You want to talk about a dispersion of the Jewish people? Well, that is what has happened, and yet we've seen the land now. With Jews going back there, we've seen a re-blossoming of the land. And so the, the literal greeting is to the 12 tribes in the diaspora, Jews who live outside of the land of Israel who have been uh, scattered. There was a scattering that happened at the death of Stephen. You can note in the book of Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and the people were scattered. And here's what happened. When the people were scattered after the death of Stephen, they went to Judea and Samaria and they went to other places. And there were other uh, Jewish people who had not become Christians who were also scattered for other reasons. And the Jewish Christians, remember the early church was Jewish. The first 3,000 people that got saved on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached were all Jewish. 3,000 Jewish people were the early church. The early church was Jewish. The door to the Gentiles doesn't happen, open to the Gentiles until Acts 10 with the house of Cornelius. So you need to know that these early Jewish Christians were a very persecuted bunch. They had embraced a Messiah that was largely rejected by the nation. They had been dispersed out of Jerusalem because of persecution. They had gone to neighboring lands only to be rejected by their own people, to knock on a door and say, will you please help us? And someone say to you, who was also Jewish, get out of here. You believe in that would-be Messiah. No, thank you. And a slam of the door in your face. They became destitute, many of them homeless, they had nowhere to go, and, they had, and a lot of this was the consequence of belief in Jesus as the Messiah. 
Some of the parallel examples are people who are in countries where the name of Jesus or belief in Christianity can mean your own personal demise. You could be uh, excommunicated from the family or even threatened with death. This was the plight of the early church. It was not easy to be a Christian. You didn't have a lot of people patting you on the back saying, hey, brother, come on in. We'll make a meal for you. It wasn't that way. And so this group of people dispersed abroad were going through severe trials. They needed some pastoral encouragement, hence the book of James. When James writes verse 2, he says something shocking. He says to his brethren, his Jewish brethren, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, imagine that you get a copy of the book of James. You're a, a Jewish person who's believed in Jesus as the Messiah. You're somewhere out on the outskirts, hungry, you know, thirsty. Maybe your family's not doing well. You get a copy of the letter of the book of James, and you're wondering if you can hang on for another day, and James says to you, consider it all joy when you go through problems, my brother. Consider it what? Consider it pure joy, NIV, when you encounter various trials. Has James gone from camel knees to camel brain? What do you mean, consider it all joy when I encounter various trials? I mean, how many of you can say the last time that you went through a terrible situation, persecution, loss of job, something difficult, you started saying, and I've got joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Your family members will start looking at you and saying, what? Or can you imagine you're working on your garage and you hit your finger with the hammer and it's pulsating and you're saying, <laughs> this is... <laughs> and you guys have all seen those silly cable commercials where somebody sits in gum or walks into a window or has soda spilling all over them. <laughs> is that what James is saying? That I'm supposed to look at my trials with some silly, plastic, laughter, smile? I don't think so. I don't think that's what James is saying at all. But I'm saying that James is saying that when you consider your trials, you need to do some recalculation based upon this, that you know God, you know the Messiah, you know how God has a way of taking even a cross and using it for his greatest victory. And so you need to reconsider how you handle trials. You need to recalculate them as an asset instead of a deficit. Now, who in the world would ever have that mindset to see a trial as an asset? instead of a deficit, to do a recalculation when I go through a test. Do you know that God does test your faith? Genesis 22.1 says that God tested Abraham. Peter says that some tests are necessary to make your faith more precious than gold in the fire, refined in the fire. 
And James says, look, I want you to do, I already know how you feel. And James experienced some of this, I'm sure, himself. So he said, I want you to consider these trials differently, my brethren. By the way, my brethren is used 14 times in the book of James. And he said, I want you to consider all joy when you encounter various trials. If you have a King James, it says diverse temptations. The Greek word is peresmos. It could mean an internal problem, like a, a temptation to sin. But here, James is talking more about an external issue. Loss of job. Finances are not doing well. You're sick, and you don't know how things are going to go. Relationships are strained, and you're wondering what's going to happen. These are the kinds of things that James is saying. And he's saying, look, when you go through these diverse temptations, just like Luke, uh, uh, excuse me, Philippians 2.5 says, it says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this attitude in you. That's what James is talking about. He's saying, look, I'm, I'm preaching about attitude adjustment here. He doesn't say if you encounter various trials, verse 2. He says, would you note it? When you encounter various trials. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when, when it comes to trials. And it's a matter of how many times a day. <laughs> amen? Life is just that way. Nobody wanted to say amen on that point. You're like, you're like. But it's true. We go through these trials. Lloyd Ogilvie, who uh, served as a uh, chaplain in the White House for a while, has an incredible perspective on this. And, I, and I've read this before, but I think it's so worth reading. Several years ago, the Presbyterian pastor, Lloyd John Ogilvie, underwent the worst year of his life. His wife had undergone five major surgeries plus radiation and chemotherapy. Several of his staff members had departed. Large problems loomed and discouragement assaulted his feelings. But he wrote, The greatest discovery that I've made in the midst of all difficulties is that I can have joy when I can't feel like it. I can have an artisan joy. When I had every reason to feel beaten, I felt joy. In spite of everything, God gave me the conviction of being loved and the certainty that nothing can separate me from him. It was not happiness, gush, or jolliness, but a constant flow of the Spirit through me. At no time did he give me the easy confidence that everything would work out as I wanted it in my own timetable, but that he was in charge and would give me and my family enough courage for each day. He would give me grace. Joy is always the result of that. Joy is always the result of saying, I know my Redeemer lives. And if this is the worst that's going to happen to me this side of heaven, I can even count it all joy because I know he's going to take me deeper in the trial. He's going to make me more like him. And so we need to recalculate when we find ourselves in various trials. Joy is not necessarily a happy skipping around when I'm facing a trial, but joy is a deep-seated reality 
that I know that Jesus lives in me, that I know that there's going to be spiritual value, even though what I'm going through is uncomfortable. I use the analogy of exercise. There are many times when I do not want to exercise. My flesh is saying, don't do it, Michael. Just have some frozen yogurt, sit on your chair, and kick back. And it sounds so good. Push-ups or a Pop-Tart. Which would you choose? Right? It's either a simple push of the toaster down or it's down, up, down, up. One is fun. I just got to wait like a minute for that Pop-Tart. <laughs> the push-up is all effort. Grunting. Creaking. <laughs> right? But here's what I know. I know the outcome of the push-up is greater strength in the body. Triceps, chest. Shoulders, back, and an added benefit of being able to show your guns when, <laughs> right? Okay, not very spiritual. Now, the Pop-Tart will also produce, quote-unquote, fruit in your life. Probably not in your guns. You all know what I'm saying? Okay. I'm not saying that from time to time you can't have your Pop-Tart. I'm just saying that in the end, we know which one produces better for us. One is a harder option for the moment that produces fruit. One is an easier option for the moment that doesn't produce much at all. And this is the way your spiritual life is. Trials produce and when you're going through a trial, you have to try in your trial to think about the result instead of the immediate uncomfortableness. Like the push-up, like riding your bike, like exercise. How good do you feel after you've done 45 minutes of exercise? Even if it was hard to get there, the outcome is you have those, uh, what do they call those, endorphins flowing? And you're like, I feel good. Yeah. Right? Then you eat the Pop-Tart and you don't feel as bad. Because you're like, I... Now, here's the sad thing. While I have a moment to talk about this. You're on the treadmill for 45 minutes and it says you burned 175 calories. You're like... <laughs> and then you eat the Pop-Tart and it was 185 calories. It took me 45 minutes on the bike in 22 seconds to eat the Pop-Tart. Somehow, this is wrong. What is joy? Joy is an inner confidence. It's a calm delight. It's a deep-seated trust that God is going to work in this situation and he's going to work his good purpose out. The word means to make a deliberate, careful, count it all joy, decision to experience joy because we know that God works all, how many? All things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And the next verse says, 
that he is conforming us into the image of his son. You guys have heard the stories of the silversmith, the silversmith scraping the dross off the vessel, and he knows he's done when he can see his own reflection in it. So when I'm going through a trial, if, if I can do this, and I'm not saying I'm always good at it, if I can step back and say, okay, Lord, I know you're gonna do something through this. As a believer, I know God's going to do something through my various trials. The word trials literally means a putting to the proof. It means a, a test that's going to produce something. And so here's what we can know. Verse three, we can count it all joy when we encounter various trials, when we fall into them, because we can know, we don't have to guess, we can know, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? It produces perseverance or endurance. The word for uh, testing there is doki mion. It is used for the testing of metals. Uh, it is used in the, with the idea of a purifying test, and it produces perseverance. I'm put to the proof so I can persevere. The word for perseverance is hupomone. It means to hang in there with hope. Simply put, hupomone. Perseverance means to hang in there with hope. I'm gonna make it to the finish line, and I know who's waiting for me there. J.H. Ropes says, perseverance is staying power. The New English Bible translates it as fortitude. And R. Kent Hughes says, the testing of your faith produces spiritual toughness. Have you met some tough spiritual people before? You know, people who have been through quite a number of trials and you look at them and you're like, brother, what is the Lord doing in your life? And they're like, I don't always know, but one thing I know, God has seen me through. And they have a spiritual toughness about them. And it's because they've seen God's faithfulness. God wants, you, wants to make you into a spiritual Iron Man, right? And have you ever seen those Iron Man competitions? How many of you remember years ago, there was a dad and a son. The, the son was... Uh, handicapped, and um, I don't think he could speak but through a computer, and he couldn't really move around. But his dad literally pulled him behind him in an Ironman competition. The dad would run the marathon, pulling his son. He would do the bike with his son, and he would swim with his son behind him in a little boat. And the son must have been in his late 20s, and the dad was probably in his 50s, and the dad was a stud, and he's just, whoo, and he's pulling his son. And they interviewed the son, and he could speak through the computer. And he said, when my dad is running, I feel like I'm running too. And it's this glorious relationship between a father and son. And listen, this is so important. When I'm talking about becoming a spiritual iron man or iron woman, I'm not talking about your strength. There have been many times when all I could do is say, God, you're gonna have to pull me on this one. I wish there were times when I could say, man, I, I feel like I was pretty strong through that. But Paul said, when I'm weak, 
then I'm strong. This is the upside down kingdom, folks. God does not work the way the world works. The world wants to show you its muscles. God wants you to grow so deep in your faith that you endure and that your endurance actually has an effect on others so that you can start pulling some people through the finish line. That you can start comforting others with the comfort with which you've been comforted by God. God has a plan to redeem the trial so that you can be a testimony because without tests, you don't have a testimony. But when you have a test, you end up with a testimony and the testimony is about God's faithfulness telling somebody else, you can pass the test too. Even if you've failed. Even if you've made a mistake. Even if you've had to take the same test over and over and over again. How many of you failed your first driving test? Come on. Anybody? All right. We'll pray for you. Uh, anyway, no, we'll pray for the other drivers around you. Never mind. All right. Hey, that's a bummer, right? You make one mistake. Isn't it scary? You're 16. Your parents can't be with you. They have to leave you. And that guy comes up with that clipboard, right? All right, what's your name? All right, get in the car, test your blinker, test that, but put your seatbelt on, show me the hand signs. You're like, <laughs> right? And then you hit a curb. Or two minutes later, they come back with your child and they say, their eyes are big and they're like, you won't believe what happened out there. <laughs> right? This child of yours almost killed me out on the highway. <laughs> and you're like, hey, you signed up to be a driving instructor, not me. Anyway. Now, not only this, but we also rejoice in our tribulations. Romans 5.3, because we know that tribulations bring about perseverance. Now, a lot of us would like to spare people from trials. One day, a small boy saw a butterfly struggling to emerge from its cocoon. It was straining with all its might to get out of the opening, which was too small. Thinking he was helping the butterfly, a small boy took his knife, slit the cocoon. But to his dismay, the butterfly emerged with small shriveled wings and was able, unable to fly. Within a short time, it was dead. The boy asked his father about it. His father explained that the butterfly needed the struggle to get out of the cocoon, for this was the very process that developed its wings and made it strong enough for flight. And trying to help by relieving the butterfly of its painful struggle, he had actually deprived it of that which was necessary for its development and its very life. The same principle carries over into all human life. The struggles, and especially our spiritual life, and the trials we face actually serve for our development, not only in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm. All discipline for a moment seems not to be joyful for the moment, but sorrowful, yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's Hebrews 12, 11. And so when you're in a trial, and some of you may be in one tonight, it's the time to say, I believe that you are Lord of the trial. I believe that you are Lord of my storm. 
And I'm going to recalculate my bummer attitude into saying, Lord, would you give me your joy? Would you give me the joy of the Lord? Let it be my strength instead of my sorrow. Would you give me joy? Because I can be joyful when it's easy to be joyful. But have you met someone who can be joyful in all circumstances? What kind of impact do they have on you? Have you met someone who is a positive person and a joyful person? No matter if there's a bunch of grumblers around the table, there's one person who's saying, you know what, I choose to be joyful. I choose to see the good in you. I choose to see the good that God can do through this trial. You see, it's a choice. You have to consider it all joy. I'm not saying it's an easy choice. But James is saying to his brethren, and we're only going to go up to verse 4, that if you make the choice, if you know that the testing of your faith will produce endurance, then you can let verse 4 endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete. What's your Bible say? Lacking in nothing. The full effect in verse 4 the perfect result is that you may be perfect. The, the word could be complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I look at my spiritual DNA sometimes and I say, man, I lack in a lot of areas. How many of you have ever done a spiritual test, maybe at the end of the week, and said, Boy, I lack this, I lack that. I should have prayed more. I should have read my Bible more. I should have witnessed to more people. I should have had more worship on. Should have, would have, could have, should have, could have, would have, would have, should have. And well, what makes the difference? Why, why does someone do well on the test and someone else fail miserably? Well, it's really a couple of things. It's about preparation and mindset. And the full effect in verse 4 could be eschatological. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? I mean that the final result of perfection is not this side of heaven. I want to take you to one more passage as we're wrapping up. It's in 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. It will make you, the trials will make you deeper, more well-rounded, um, 2 Corinthians 4, here's what Paul says in verse 16. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. I measure so much by my outer man, God's worried about my inner man. And my inner man's being renewed how often? Day by day. For momentary light affliction, and Paul certainly experienced much of it, is what? It's producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Bible says this is why this probably, at least in, in part, has to do with the, the, the new life to come, if you will. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are what? They're temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so later on in chapter 7, same book, 2 Corinthians 
7, he says, verse 4, Great is my confidence in you. And by the way, the Corinthian church was a trial to Paul. And he says, Great is my confidence, 2 Corinthians 7, 4, in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all, what? Our affliction. How is it possible to live a life that way? It's possible when the mindset that you have is on Jesus. All this gives us potential to go deeper, to reach more people, to have a strong testimony, and to be more usable. Did you ever notice, asked an old lady as she smiled into the troubled face before her, that when the Lord told the discouraged fishermen to cast their nets again, it was right in the same old place where they had been working all night and had caught nothing? If we could only go off to some new place every time we get discouraged, trying again would be an easier thing. If we could be somebody else or go somewhere else or do something else, it might not be hard to have fresh faith and courage. But it is the same old net in the same old pond for most of us. The old temptations are to be overcome. The old faults are to be conquered. The old trials and discouragements which we failed yesterday must be faced again. We must win success where we are, if we are to win at all. It is the master himself who says, after all the toilsome hard work, the disheartening efforts that we call failures, he bids us try again. Try again, but this time, bring me into it. Cast your net on that side of the boat, but this time, keep your eye on me. And your trials will turn into victories. Father, thank you so much for the book of James. Right out of the gate with no... uh, real theological introduction like Paul often does where he tells us about grace and then tells us, okay, now here's how you should live in light of the grace. Well, James just says, all right, get it together. (laughs) Count it all joy. I know you're going through the battle, but hang in there because God's doing something. Even when you don't see it, even when you're struggling, even when you're not sure how you can go on, He's working. And he's going to produce something beautiful, strong, deep, not surfacy, not shallow, not just looking good on the outside, but not much on the inside. No, God's more about the inside and letting the outside follow. So if you're here tonight and you this is hitting real close to home and you're in a trial, Could I say, consider it all joy? Could I ask you through the Holy Spirit to recalculate, to reassess? Instead of seeing your circumstance as a deficit, can you put it on the asset side of the ledger? Can you say, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I just know that you are going to do it because I just read the book of James that says that you are. So I'm going to believe you. And since the book of James is about faith and practical faith, real faith, true faith, help me, Lord, increase my faith. 
you're not a Christian tonight, the first thing is to cry out to him to save you. To ask him to be your Lord and Savior, to repent of sin and trust him. But this room is filled with a lot of Christians, so tonight it may just be, Lord, I'm in a trial, and I'm gonna ask you to help me to consider it all joy. To consider this audience of James and how significant their troubles were, how they had no easy answers. We have so many fallbacks, Lord, so many people who, for a lot of us, are there for us when things aren't going good. But many of these people said, I have nobody, but I have the Lord. And maybe you feel alone tonight and you've looked around and there's not a lot of people that have your back, but the Lord said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And I'm working even when you can't see it. So put it in the joy category. So Lord, as we take some moments to be real before you and to try to recalculate some things that we know we need to and we've been maybe bitter and joyless. Help us in something that's we honestly would say is real challenging, Lord. It's, it's so counterintuitive to us and yet it's your word and it's true and it's possible because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So Lord, I, I pray that your fresh living waters would refresh, refocus, reinvigorate your people. I pray that your hand would go out to that dear saint who needs a touch, a reminder of how good you are, how much you love them, Lord. Just thank you for your, your faithfulness and love for us. We, we love you, Lord. We love you. We want to bless your name tonight. We want to praise you as we close together in song. May we sing unto you, our great God, our great Savior. In Jesus' holy name we pray.